if you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 25. Ezekiel chapter 25. Ezekiel is a Jewish exile in Babylon. He was commissioned by God to be a prophet. He was a Levite. He was a priest. But he was commissioned by God to be a prophet to speak to the exiles in Babylon regarding the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. That's what we've seen thus far in the first 24 chapters. There's more to come, but there are hope. There are hints of hope, which we will see as we go along. So what we find and what we expect in the Old Testament prophets is that they are addressing their messages primarily to their own people, God's covenant community. We read in chapters 16 and 23, the story of the abandoned baby rescued and the two sisters all of whom became promiscuous prostitutes. God says, you became mine. And then in chapter 23, they were mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. That is to say, Israel belonged to God by covenant. For some people at that time, and even today, interestingly enough, this implies that Jehovah, or Yahweh, was a tribal God. He was only the God of the Jews period. But if you read the Old Testament prophets, you find that they also prophesy judgment against other nations, the surrounding peoples. It's like, why? They're not God's people. Why are they preaching about these people? Well, there are at least two reasons, and they're really important for what we're going to see in the next few Sundays. First of all, the Jews were monotheistic. That is, they held to the belief that there's only one God. And he is the God of the whole earth. As a consequence, he has something to say about the history and the destinies of nations other than Israel. You see, if you say, if one says there is only one God, then that God cannot be limited to one people. And while Israel was bound to God by covenant, they were his covenant people, he is the God of all creation. Thus, the Old Testament prophets tell of the coming judgment on these nations as well. It's not as though God is myopic and only focuses on Israel. He is the God of all. He is the one true God. So that's the first reason why we see what we see in the Old Testament prophets. The second is, while Israel has been judged, will be judged by God's laws given to them at Sinai, They define the covenant between Israel and the Lord. Other nations don't have a covenant with God. They don't have a covenant relationship with him. They do not have the law of Moses from Sinai to tell them how they are supposed to act, how they're supposed to behave. But they do have moral standards. Everyone does. Every person has a sense that this is what is right and this is what is wrong. Now, their standards may be messed up, I mean, they may have a really warped view of what they are allowed to do and what they cannot do. But in fact, they have moral standards. And they are judged by those standards. Thus, there is a coming judgment. This is something that Paul wrote about in Romans. 
Um, he's writing to the church in Rome, which contains both Jews and Gentiles. And there's seemingly some conflict about what the Gentiles have to do. Do they have to become like Jews and various issues? But in chapter 2, he says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, he goes on, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. And since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Simply put, even if someone does not have scripture, if they don't have the law from Moses, from Sinai, they still have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And again, that that may not be correct. It may be somewhat twisted. But they have a sense that this is what I'm supposed to do and these are the things I'm not supposed to do. And they will be judged on that standard, their own standards. And they will be found to come short. Imagine a people who have never heard of God or the Bible. Do they have a moral standard, a set of rules to follow? Yes. And would each of the individuals among these people keep or not break any of these rules? No. We set the standard at a certain point and we all fall short. As human beings, we violate our own standards or ideals of what is good and right to what is evil and wrong. Simply put, we're not consistent. But also imagine a people who have heard of God and the Bible, but they do not believe in God. They do not believe what is written in Scripture. They live by their own standards. Would each of them keep and not break their standards? No. They have standards, but they do not keep them. We violate our own standards or ideals of what is good and right, what is evil and wrong. With that in mind, we should not be surprised with what we find beginning in chapter 25. After 24 chapters of dealing with Israel's coming judgment, we are now from chapters 25 to 32 given a message regarding the surrounding peoples, various nations, pagan nations, not Israel, not God's people, and God's coming judgment on them. Four of them, the message is relatively comparatively short. It's, they're all found in chapter 25, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Two of them are more extended. There are three chapters that deal with Tyre and then four chapters that deal with Egypt. In chapter 25, which we'll look at today, if you look at a map, Ezekiel begins with Ammon. And if we had a map up here, this is the Mediterranean Sea. You have the coastline. You have Israel here. And then on the other side of the Jordan River, northeast a bit, you have Ammon. Okay? And then as you go south, you have Moab. Farther south, you have Edom. And then you make a right turn out to the coast, and that's Philistia, the Philistines. These are the four nations that Ezekiel 
speaks of, that God through Ezekiel speaks of the prophecy against them. One more thing before we go on. Ammon, Moab, and Edom are in fact relatives of the Israelites. The Philistines are the only ones who are not relatives. When the Israelites came close to the promised land, they're on the east side of the Jordan River. They're given very specific instructions, all found in Deuteronomy chapter 2. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will give you possession of any land belonging, I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. And then earlier, then the Lord said to me, do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. I don't know if you remember the story of Lot, a brief background. When Abraham came to what we now know as Israel, the promised land, it was Palestine, his nephew came with him, Lot. And God blessed them and prospered them so much so that their flocks could not stay in the same area. So Abraham said to his nephew, who was younger, you choose where you want to stay. And Lot looked down on Sodom and Gomorrah, a lot of green grass. I want to go there. And so he did. Abraham, if you think about it, should have been given the first choice as the uncle, as the older one. But graciously, he allowed Lot to go ahead. When the Lord decided to destroy those cities for their wickedness, two angels were sent to rescue Lot and his family. Lot, his wife, and his two daughters made it out, but his wife turned around and looked and turned into a pillar of salt. So it ends up with Lot and his two daughters. They end up living apart from society in a cave in the mountains. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let us get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. And that's what they did. The older sister, the first night, they got him drunk. She became pregnant. And then the younger sister, they got Lot drunk. She became pregnant. The older sister gave birth to a son named Moab, the father of the Moabites. The younger daughter gave birth to a son, Ben-Ami, who was the father of the Ammonites. With this in mind, you would have thought that Ezekiel would have started with Moab, because he's the older brother, and then Ammon, but he's going geographically. Ammon is to the north, and then Moab a bit to the south. What about Edom? Ammon, Moab, Edom. Again, in Deuteronomy 2, do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. Esau was Jacob's twin brother, actually the older brother. He came out first. He was to receive the blessing, but Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceitfully uh, deceived his father and took the blessing from him. The promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac then transferred to Jacob and his descendants. But Esau was not forgotten. 
Esau, who is also known as Edom because he was red, that's what Edom means, he's a hairy man, he was given the land of Edom or Mount Seir. All of this to say is there's a history between Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Um, not so with the Philistines except for war. That seemed to be the relationship between Israel and the Philistines. There were conflicts between these three nations and the Israelites, okay? But they are the relatives of the Israelites. And now the Lord speaks against them. First against Ammon. If you look at verse number 1, chapter 25. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to them, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was desecrated, and over the land of Israel when it was laid waste, and over the people of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, I am going to give you to the people of the east as a possession. They will set up their camps and pitch their tents among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I will turn Rabbah into a pasture for camels, and Ammon into a resting place for sheep. Then they will, you will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel, therefore I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the nations and exterminate you from the countries. I will destroy you and you will know that I am the Lord. I don't know if you remember, but in chapter 21, as uh, Ezekiel prophesies of the coming destruction, he is instructed to draw a, a road map. We don't know if it's on paper, but I would assume on the ground. And this is the king of Babylon is going to go this way. And then there's a fork in the road. And to one side is to go to Rabbah, the capital of Ammon, the Ammonites. The other way is to go to Jerusalem, the capital of the Israelites. And the king of Babylon had to make a choice, and he used three different methods for making that choice. One involved arrows, the other one involved his idols, and the third, the liver of sacrifice animals. And Jerusalem was his choice. He marched against it and destroyed it. But one should not imagine that, in fact, Rabbah was going to be ignored. It was simply a question of who he was going to conquer first. The Ammonites didn't seem to get this. Instead, they gloated over the destruction of Jerusalem. And by the way, if you think about it, timing-wise, this means that this prophecy is given after the fall of Jerusalem. Up to this point, Jerusalem has not yet fallen. So this is something that happens later that is now inserted at this point in the book of Ezekiel. They said, aha! They laughed over the destruction of the temple when it was desecrated. The land was laid waste and the people were taken into exile. There's a German word for this. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Schadenfreude. It's pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortune. We don't have a single English word for this. Gloating comes close, but it's not quite there. I think what comes closest is malicious satisfaction. It's when you're just, you're just delighted at the misfortune of someone else. 
And we hear this in verse number six. You clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart. Malicious satisfaction. Don't you think it's weird that God doesn't mention, oh, and by the way, you guys are pagans, you worship false gods, you bow down to idols? No. What he judges them for is their malice and their hostility against Israel, the people God had chosen as his own. And their malicious satisfaction at the destruction of the temple, which represented the presence of God, this is unacceptable. But with their schadenfreude, with their malicious satisfaction, they are delighted that this happens to the Jews. And the consequence is that they in themselves are going to fall. Interestingly enough, not to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, but to the eastern peoples. We don't know who this is. We think they're nomadic peoples. But basically their city becomes waste and it becomes a place to graze the camels and the sheep. And in fact, I will cut you off from the nations and exterminate you from the countries. I will destroy you. Ammon would be judged and suffer for her malicious satisfaction. The same thing is true of Moab. If you look in verse number eight, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because Moab and Seir, that's Edom, said, look, the house of Judah has become like all the other nations. Therefore, I will expose, expose the flank of Moab, beginning with its frontier towns, Beth Shemetha, I'm going to get this, Jeshimoth, get it right, Baal, Meon, and Kiriathaim, the glory of that land. There are three great cities. I will give Moab along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession so that the Ammonites will not be remembered among the nations. And I will inflict punishment on Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Moab and Edom delighted in the fact that Israel's claim to be the people of God, a special people who belong to God by covenant, was refuted. The evidence, you can't be special. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Your people are taken into exile. And with malicious satisfaction, Moab and Edom say, she's become like all the other nations. She's not so special after all. The third nation are the Edomites, Edom, beginning in verse number 12. This is what the sovereign Lord says, because Edom took revenge on the house of Judah and became very guilty by doing so. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will stretch out my hand and, against Edom and kill its men and their animals. I will lay it waste, and from Teman to Dedan, they will fall by the sword. I will take vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. They will deal with Edom in accordance with my anger and my wrath. They will know my vengeance, declares the sovereign Lord. This is something that comes up elsewhere in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Psalms. Psalm 137. I don't know if you're familiar. By the waters of Babylon, it starts out. They said, sing us the songs Sing us the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And then it goes on to say, Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did, 
on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Edom's sin was taking revenge on the house of Judah. And they became very guilty by doing so. Grievously offended God. By the way, they had also done, we saw with Moab, the malicious satisfaction, but also the sense of revenge. And the consequence is, they will know my vengeance, declares the sovereign Lord. But there's something else. Have you noticed? For Ammon and Moab, at the end it says, then they will know that I am the Lord. We don't hear this with Edom. Judgment we tend to think of as primarily punishment. It isn't always punishment. There is that component, but it is correction. When you judge something to be wrong, you must have the right. You might say, no, that's wrong. This is how you do it. So it's not condemnation, and it's not necessarily punishment. It may involve that, but it is a correction. Well, that doesn't seem to be present with the Edomites. The judgment is, in fact, condemnation. They will not know who the Lord is. What a judgment that is. They will only know the Lord's vengeance. And then we come to the Philistines. Verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with, the, with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah, therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm about to stretch out my hand against the Philistines and will, I will cut off the Carathites and destroy those remaining along the coast. I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. The sin of the Philistines, they acted with vengeance, they took revenge with malice in their hearts. So you have a combination of this malicious satisfaction as well as taking vengeance. Some ancient hatred and ancient hostility against God's people. God says, you want to take revenge? You want vengeance? I will take out my vengeance on you. I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. So these are the four nations that are right around Judah. Now in chapter 26, the beginning of three chapters, we'll only look at one today, we go north to Tyre, which is in southern Lebanon. It's about 100 miles from Jerusalem. It's not, by the way, everything in the Middle East is fairly close together. Okay. Um, it is an ancient city we think founded by the Phoenicians who were seafaring traders. They were the economic rivals, the commercial competitors of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was landlocked. It, was, it seemed like all trade that came from the east had to go through Jerusalem and then would go up to Tyre and then from there could go out to the rest of the Mediterranean basin. Here in chapter 26, we have a prophecy of their coming destruction. And then in the next chapter, we have a lament for Tyre. And then in chapter 28, a prophecy against them, against the prince. There are three parts of this chapter, but the Lord willing, we'll see that next week. So what was it that Tyre was guilty of? 
we don't necessarily have this malicious satisfaction. Um, but let's see as we go along. Tire, it's one of those things, you know, in real estate, location, location, location. Uh, tire, if you look at the map, even today, um, it's, it sort of sticks out. There's this point that comes out from the Lebanese coast, and then there's an island. The island is actually Tyre, meaning rock. And both the, sea, the mainland part and the island had deep harbors. And around the 10th century BC, someone made a causeway connecting the two, so it doubled its potential for commerce. By the way, who built the causeway? King Hiram, the ally of King David. It's Hiram who provided much of the material that went into building the temple after David's death. Tyre was famous for its glassware and for its dyed cloth, the purple cloth made from a local sea sh uh, shellfish. Um, and, but they also made a lot of money as trade would come through uh, from the east and then from the west going east. Verse 1 of chapter 26. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, and we're not told what month this is, by the way, possibly the, a month after Jerusalem falls, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Aha! The gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down its towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out on the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord." The prophecy begins with them rejoicing over the fall of Jerusalem. Their main competitor, their commercial competitor, has been destroyed. Aha, the gates have been left open. We think that the trade that came from the east, and as far east as India, came through Jerusalem. And as trade came through, you had to pay a toll. And that's how Jerusalem made a lot of its money. Well, now Jerusalem's no more. So now people will go straight to Tyre, and now Tyre will make more money than it has in the past. Tyre will suffer greatly, but not necessarily in the near future. And this is one of the things that's troubling about this passage is uh, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Tyre for 13 years, but he ended up not conquering it. He simply forced them to pay tribute. But as time went on, little by little, People would come against Tyre, and slowly but surely, Tyre was destroyed. Verse 7, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, from the north I am going to bring against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword. He will set up siege works against you, build a ramp up to your walls, and will raise his shields against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and demolish your towers with his weapons. His horses will be so many that they will cover you with dust. Your walls will tremble at the noise of the war horses, wagons, and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city whose walls have been broken through. 
The hoofs of his horses will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber and rubble into the sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. This might seem to indicate that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who destroyed Tyre, but this isn't the case. He did lay siege, as I said, to the city for 13 years, and he did a great deal of damage, not to the island part, which is technically Tyre, rock, okay? But because of the way that it was set up, that became a place where they kept all their treasure, it became this impregnable uh, fortress. And in fact, they were safe there. But everyone on the mainland, they were fair game. And Nebuchadnezzar did incredible damage. Verse, beginning at verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Tyre. Will not the coastlands tremble at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan and the slaughter takes place in you? Then all the princes of the coast will step down from their thrones and lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments. Clothed with terror, they will sit on the ground, trembling every moment, appalled at you. Then they will take up a lament concerning you and say to you, how you are destroyed, O city of renown, peopled by men of the sea. It's the Phoenicians. You were a power of the seas, you and your citizens. You put terror on all who lived there. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. The islands in the sea are terrified at your collapse. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I make you a desolate city, like the city is no longer inhabited, and when I bring the ocean depths over you and its vast waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of long ago. I will make you dwell on the earth below as in ancient ruins with those who go down to the pit, and you will not return or take your place in the land of the living. I will bring you to a horrible end, and you will be no more. You will be sought, but you will never again be found, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is what will happen to this ancient, powerful, and rich city, Tyre, because of her pride and her malicious satisfaction at the fall of Jerusalem. The Lord willing will continue this next week. But it might seem strange that God spends so much time through Ezekiel dealing with these other nations. After all, they're not his people technically. Israel is the one bound to him by covenant. The Israelites have violated the covenant over and over again. They had all the benefits God chose them. God delivered them, not just out of Egypt, but over and over again. He revealed himself to Israel. He gave them his law. They should be judged. But why the others? They didn't have such benefits. We hear in Psalm 147, he has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation They do not know his laws. So why should they be judged? Well, let's go back to where we began in the sermon. 
First of all, there is only one God. There isn't one God for Israel, then a God for Edom, for Moab, Ammon, for Moab. Yeah, they had false gods, but there's only one true God. And as such, he has something to say. He is in control of the history and destinies of all peoples. If you say there's only one God, then he is not limited to one nation. Yes, the Israelites were God's chosen people, but he is the God of all nations. He is the God of all the earth. We live in a time in which it is commonly said, and you may have heard this, perhaps even just this last week, oh, that's your truth. When you say, this is what God says, this is the truth. Well, that's your truth. As though, in fact, it may not be my truth. It's yours and yours alone. And it sounds quite tolerant. But in real life, it doesn't actually work. You may tell me, I'm about to drink something, don't drink that. It's deadly poison. It's poisonous. It will kill you. And I may respond, well, that's your truth. And what happens if I drink it? I'll probably die. It's not a question of a person's truth. It's a question of what is truth. It's not a question of, oh, that's your God. That's what you believe. No, he is the sovereign Lord. And you know, if we didn't have these chapters in Ezekiel, and if we didn't have the book of Nahum and Amos and part of Isaiah, part of Jeremiah, I mean, all through the prophets, they talk about other nations. We might think, oh, Jehovah is a tribal deity. He's a God that the Israelites thought up. No, there's only one God. There's only one God, and he is God of all creation. And so he gets to say to Ammon, I'm going to judge you. And to Moab, and to Edom, to Philistia, to Tyre, and we will see in a few weeks, to Egypt. Well, you're not our God. You can't tell us. You're not the boss of me. You can't. No, he is the Lord God Almighty. As the judge of all the earth, he will judge people based on what they have. The Israelites have the law of God. They will be judged. They are going to be judged, as we will see in Ezekiel, because they've broken God's law. What about the people who don't have God's law? They have their own laws and they have broken their own laws. And therefore, they will be rightly judged by God. As I said earlier, imagine a people who have never heard of God or the Bible. Do they have moral standards? Of course they do. They may be twisted. They may be rather perverse. But they still have standards of right and wrong. And they break them. No one is perfectly consistent with their standards of morality. A book came out, I think, maybe in the 70s, by Don Richardson called The Peace Child. He had gone to New Guinea as a missionary, gone out into the bush, uh, uh, worked among cannibals. And these people had, as a moral standard, deception as the highest virtue. 
if you could deceive someone, you were all right. So then when he began to preach the gospel to them, and he told them how Judas betrayed Jesus, in their minds, Judas became the good guy, and Jesus was the sucker. And Richardson was at his wit's end. How do I convey to these wicked people who have such a twisted sense of right and wrong, how do I present the gospel to them? Well, he found out they also had a belief that in order for there to be peace between neighboring villages, they would swap children. One child would go to this village, from that village another child would go there. And this child was known as the peace child. This child, as long as this child lived, there would be peace between these two villages. And so Richardson began to speak of Jesus as the peace child. And then Judas dropped in the polls, if you wish, because to, de to deceive a peace child was the greatest sin you could commit. See, everyone has standard morality. And for some, it's quite twisted. But whatever it is, they still break it. And they are guilty and they will be judged. For those who have read the Bible, those who have heard of God, yet yeah, he's not my God. I, I don't believe in him. I don't believe in scripture. Okay, live by your own standards. And are you consistent? No, you are not. And in the final day, you will be judged. As Christians, we're often accused, and sometimes we're afraid, that we are considered intolerant and exclusive, not inclusive. But the truth is, there is one God. There's only one God. And he is Lord over all. And his truth is the truth. It is the truth. And one day we will all stand before him. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus will be our advocate. He will be our defending attorney. He will stand in our place. But for those who have not accepted him, those who have rejected him, they will be judged, either by what they know from scripture or their own standards. Because God is Lord of all. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want to be rejected. We want to be accepted like everyone else. We want to be seen as tolerant, not fanatical or dogmatic. And yet the truth is, you are the Lord God Almighty, the one true God. And as such, you are in control of all peoples, all nations, whether they are in relationship with you or not. And as the one true God, you are the one who has the right to judge all peoples. And one day you will. By what they know, what they have, whether it be your word, your law, or by their own standards. 
again, we don't want to be seen as intolerant. We want to be seen as inclusive. We want to allow that other people have their truth. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. And we should not waver on that. And in these chapters that speak of ancient peoples now gone, we learn that, yes, you would judge your people, but you judge all the nations. their delight, their malicious satisfaction at your judgment of your people. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would drive these truths home to our hearts. We would think on them. And be assured and affirmed in the reality that there is one true God and his truth is truth. And one day he will judge all people. And yet we should not think of God, the one true God, as this vindictive deity. For he is the one who causes the, shine, the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. For it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How gracious he is. We thank you for his love and calling us out to be his people and for his care for us. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your truth go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.